Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Village Church East. It's good to see you. My name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor here. And if you have little ones that you would like to send out with a uh, very competent children's staff so that they can learn at their own level uh, this morning, same lesson, actually, uh, but in a different location, you can send them out now. I think they're all gone. Good. Good to see you all this morning. Well, it is spring break. Take a look around. That's not hard to figure out, is it? <laughs> it's so interesting that... Um, Every year we get to the point where everybody gets a moment to spend time with family. I hope that you're getting that as well uh, in your different opportunities that you have with your families as well. I thought maybe we would do a little something before we started this morning while we're getting the sound played with a little bit. Uh, I would like to just remind you, if you are watching the news and you're seeing what's going on in Afghanistan, uh, you're kind of keeping track of that, I want to remind you that you can give directly through our church you're thinking to yourself what can I do to help what can how can I how can I participate in in what God might be doing behind the scenes you can uh, jump on our website press the give button and it will take you right to an opportunity to give to uh, Carol uh, Carol Streamville's Church East and then it'll say uh, uh, Ukraine and if you click on that it'll take you to an Awana website and we are we've decided that we're going to be giving not only a couple of weeks like what we decided at the beginning, but we're going to continue giving to this Awana uh, group that is over there and constantly working with missionaries and constantly working through churches that are ministering to people that are being displaced, looking for places to go, looking for medicine, looking for food. This gives us a direct line so that your cash, 100% of it, this is all, everything that you give goes directly to help those people uh, in Ukraine going through all of this. So if you would like to do that, I just wanted to remind you that that is an opportunity. And I thought maybe we would uh, open up our my time this morning during the service by praying for uh, what God might be doing behind the scenes that we don't get to see on a regular basis. So would you bow your heads with me? Father God, when we look at the condition of our world, sometimes it, it seems like we think it can't get any worse, and then it does. And it surprises us how dark the darkness can get. For the people that are fleeing for their lives in Ukraine, taken by surprise through this event that is happening over there, Father, I pray that even in the middle of that darkness, your grace would be great, your light would shine through your people, through your church that is active and at work in the surrounding nations and also really still now in Ukraine. May you build them up, encourage them, give them a love, a joy, a peace that passes understanding. May you be close to them, closer than they've ever thought possible. And as they go through the horrors of losing loved ones and family members and friends and seeing the carnage around them of this senseless activity that's going on right now, I pray, Father, that somehow you and your name and your grace and your love and your mercy and your compassion and everything that you are would be seen through the darkness, available and seen through your people. And so, Father, we, we want to give finances and help in any way that we can, but we also believe that prayer is our greatest weapon. So may you take these prayers that we pray and your people are praying around the world, bring an end to this conflict, preserve life, and I pray that you would help sense and, and uh, um, reason to prevail. Help us to know what our part to play is, uh, that we should be playing as a nation 
and help us to do it boldly and courageously. Help us to lead the way because of the gifts that you have given to us as a nation. And may we be a light in, in our generosity to those that are being pillaged and hurt even today. And for the soldiers that are fighting for Russia, that don't know why they're there and are fighting under duress uh, because their families will be harmed if they don't, I pray that even, even there, these people that are creating the carnage, I pray that they would see you, recognize the error of their ways, and they would turn their lives to you. You're the only hope for that situation and every other situation on the planet. You've always been. So may your grace be strong. May the power of your name uh, bring peace to these areas of conflict. I pray it's all in Jesus' name. Well, we're starting a new series today. I've been anxious to get to this new series. Uh, this is called Foreigners, Enemies, and Outcasts. Uh, and you have to say it like I do. So uh, if you're not Canadian, everybody get ready. Here I go. Foreigners, Enemies, and Outcasts. That's right, Outcasts. Uh, this is a, a new series we're going to be doing. It'll lead us right up to Palm Sunday. Uh, Megan did a great job of, of our announcements, and I, I am really excited that we're going to actually have our Palm service Sunday with our friends at Bartlett. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to be there. That's the last Sunday that we're going to be working on this series that we're jumping into now. As we've walked through Cana and Jesus saying goodbye to his mom and then moving on to the, to the next phase where he talks to Nicodemus and he begins to enter into his ministry, turns over the tables in the temple. You've been tracking with us this whole time. He comes to the first moment when he's actually going to teach. Up to now, we don't have actually any, anything that he's taught. He's taught the disciples, and he may actually have done some public ministry. But as far as we know, this is the first time that Jesus actually takes a message public. We get to look at that this morning because it is so surprising who he talks to. So my question to you is, is this. When Jesus takes his, pub, his ministry public, he first goes to people who are avoided, People who are, who, who are kind of walked by. Who, people, who, people who make other people feel uncomfortable. So my question to you this morning is this. Is there anyone on your avoid list? Do you have somebody, or maybe these days your avoid list is getting longer and longer. I love them, Craig. They're family, Craig. They're friends, Craig. But because of what's going on in our lives, they've now entered into my avoid list. Some of them are moving to the top quickly. Or maybe you have been put on an avoid list. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, Craig, I don't avoid anybody. I'm like Jesus. I, don't I know where this message is going. You don't need to do the next 30, 40 minutes. I, I know where this is going. I don't avoid anybody. Okay, well, there's some people that we do avoid, right? Telemarketers, we avoid, right? Telemarketers, sure, we avoid them. How about the Ugandan prince that promises you $1 million if you send him $5,000 today? Right? We, we want to avoid that guy. How about the dentist? Right? All right, so we want to avoid the dentist. How about that old girlfriend you stood up 10 years ago, but now you're married and she lives three blocks from you? Right? She is on the avoid list. How about an, any interaction with any cellular company at all? That's on my avoid list. How about your wife when she starts out the sentence with, when you get home, we've got to talk? The avoid list. How about the family member that wants to discuss politics again? <laughs> the avoid list. 
How about the pastor when he says, hey, let's have coffee, avoid list. There's certain people that we put on this avoid list, and there's, there's different situations that we try to avoid. But we live in a time, interestingly enough, in these days, when we are encouraged to pe- put people on an avoid list. We live in a time when increasingly told it is acceptable and even recommended to put people on your avoid list. They don't agree with your point of view. They, 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 they are others, there are other people in your life that tell you what you should think of those other people. And if you don't think that way, you're going on their avoid. I had, I had, I had a woman that told me that she befriended a guy in her family that everybody else befriended, but because of his political views, everybody else put him on the avoid list. But because she befriended him and wouldn't put him on her avoid list, she was on everybody else's avoid list. While we're starting this series on foreigners, enemies, and outcasts, and I want you to know something about Jesus you probably already know. Jesus constantly went against the social norms. He's actually known for befriending people others constantly try to avoid. Jesus ran toward these people. He ran toward people that others disliked. He ran toward people that others overlooked. And he ran toward people that others avoided. And his first lesson, his first devotional, his first message was given to the person on the top of every Jewish avoid list. Do you know the story? Here it is. <clears throat> this is when Jesus went out of his way to talk to a Samaritan woman. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, Samaritan woman? Wait a second. No, Jesus liked the Samaritans. Yes, he did. We have the parable of the good Samaritan. Thank you very much, yes. Yes, we can participate here. Parable of the Good Samaritan. And so we were thinking to ourselves, no, there's Good Samaritans. Mm, 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 mm. That's why that parable rubbed the Jews the wrong way. There were no Good Samaritans. So when Jesus made up a parable of a guy that went out of his way to help somebody else, he wanted to put his finger in the eye of the problem that these Jewish people were, were, were facing. And so he said, you know what? The hero in this story is going to be the person you hate person you try to avoid. So we're going to make it a Samaritan. When he healed the 10 lepers, you remember that story? Healed the 10 lepers, nine, nine never came back and thanked him. They all were healed as they left him. You may not know the story. It's a great story. Only one person, one leper came back to thank him. Do you know who that was? It was a Samaritan. We know these stories, so we think to ourselves, well, no, the Samaritans, they, they, they got along well. Mm-mm, they did not. You might be shocked to know Jesus began his public ministry by talking to the person, to the group of people, the person <laughs> on the list of every Jewish to be avoided list. Not only did he do that, but he talked to this lady, and she had a lot of reasons personally, not just being a Samaritan, but personally, why she should be avoided. She was unmarried. She was sleeping with a lot of guys. And she was a Samaritan. And guess what Jesus does? He makes a beeline for her. Starts in John 4, verse 1. Well, we'll start in verse 3. He left Judea, and he departed again for Galilee. And now I want you to read this next verse, all right? These next two words, because 
Again, if you just read over them, you're going to miss it. So I underlined them and made them yellow for you, all right? And he, what does it say? He had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. So those words make me go, hmm. Jesus is on his way home from Passover. You know this. He just had Passover. He turned over the tables, made everybody mad, and then he meets with Nicodemus. That's all Passover weekend. His conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 went amazingly well. But now he's going to go home to Galilee where he lives. And on his way home, he has a choice. And his choice is to go the route that most Jewish people went to go from Jerusalem to Galilee, or he could go another route. Now, this is going to shock you, so I put the map up here so that you could see it. Most Jewish people followed the red dotted line. Do you see how far out of the way that is? They left Judea, they left Jerusalem, and then they went across the Jordan River. You see that? They went across the Jordan River, and then they walked up the other side of the Jordan, and then they walked back into Jewish territory to get to Galilee. Now, is there a shorter route? Yeah. How about straight through? Jesus went straight through. He did not take the route that most Jewish people did. That big arrow there is a straight shot up to Galilee, and where that arrow ends is a place called Sychar, and this is where he met the woman at the well. Typically, this is why Jewish people avoided Samaritans, because you're probably thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't make much sense. Why would they avoid Samaritans? I'm glad you asked. Samaritans were half Jewish and half Gentile. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Again, that's no big deal. To a Jewish person, it was, because there is always a reason why Jewish people don't marry other Jewish people. Because Jewish people are supposed to marry other Jewish people. In this case, these guys, these people, these Samaritans, were referred to as unclean people. Actually, they had a word for them, and I'm I'm sorry this offends you, but this is literally, they would call them one of two words. Do you know what any of the two words were? They would call the Samaritans, Jews would call the Samaritans dogs, or they would call them half-breeds. Typical. It was well accepted on the avoid list. Now, in our day today, we're thinking to ourselves, oh, that's very offensive. I can't believe Craig would even say such a thing. You maybe don't understand the world in which we live, because the avoid list in our world is getting pretty long, too. Don't talk to these people. Do talk to these people. We'll get more to that. But for now, let's deal with Jesus' day. The Samaritans were ceremonially unclean people. Here's why. This is amazing. If you study the history of where the Samaritans came from, does anybody know where the Samaritans came from? The Assyrians, when they attacked and besieged Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, you remember that? Actually, it's before Isaiah's day. Long time ago, 722, before Christ. When they besieged Jerusalem and they attacked Jerusalem, northern, southern kingdom, a lot of them stayed. And they stayed and they married and they had offspring and those people got married and they had offspring and those people got married and they had offspring. So you know who the, who the Samaritans were? Assyrians who attacked Israel so many, so many two, 700 years ago. They had relations. They took advantage of the Jewish people and they had offspring, and those offspring had offspring. And so the Jewish people resented the fact that they were Assyrian blood. 
they were their enemies. They were ceremonially unclean. Not only that, but they had bad blood between them. (laughs) Here's what happened. When they came home from Babylon, you remember they went into exile in Babylon. You may not know this, but here's some history for you. They go into exile in Babylon. They're in exile, and they get sent home. This is the time of Ezra. You remember this in the Old Testament? They get sent home, and Nehemiah, Nehemiah builds the wall. You remember the story? Nehemiah builds the wall. They're trying to make their lives ha- happen again. The, the, wor- the world is, is burnt. It's, it's destroyed because the Babylonians desecrated everything. They burnt everything. Nothing's there. They destroyed, and they poured salt on it. Nothing could grow. These guys had to come back, and they had to try and make life. And it was hard. And when they came back and they tried to make life happen again, you know who was still there? The Samaritans, the offspring of the Assyrians. And you know who gave Nehemiah a hard time while he was trying to build the wall and get the people back up on their feet and trying to rebuild their lives? You know who that was? The Samaritans. Nothing good about that, is there? They had bad blood. And also they were theologically offensive. What do I mean by that? They thought they had the mountain to worship in. The Jewish people said that was Mount Zion. This is a place where we worship. But the Samaritans, they weren't allowed to Mount Zion. They weren't allowed to go there, so they made up their own mountain to worship, and that mountain was where Jesus headed now. Samaritans didn't believe anything after the Pentateuch. They said that they were Jewish. They said that they were more Jewish than the real Jews because they stayed in the land while they were off in captivity. And there was bad blood between them. And they were theologically offensive to the Jews because they said nothing after the Pentateuch counts. Because that's when the Jews went into exile and that's when all of those minor prophets were written and none of that matters. Nothing matters when the divided kingdom happened. David and Solomon and all that junk and Saul, nothing of that matters. What matters is the real truth of God, and that's only in the Pentateuch. And the Samaritans had their own place of worship, and they had their own Bible. And it was cut off at the Pentateuch. The Jewish people did not give the Samaritans any way to be right with God. They were so far off the deep end, there was no way for them to come back. And so they let them worship at their own Mount Gizron was the name of the place. Well, the Jews had enough of that. (laughs) So the Jewish people, 200 years before Jesus was born, they invaded Samaritan territory and they burned the temple of the Samaritans to the ground because they were worshiping in the wrong place. There's some history. So do you think the Samaritans liked the Jewish people? Do you think the Jewish people liked the Samaritan people? And there you have it. This is the world that Jesus walks into. The Jews were despised by the Samaritans. They were despised for their beliefs, their culture. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews, and the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. It was culturally acceptable. This division could not be repaired. It was well accepted. And then, because these people are always fighting, the Romans come in, conquer the land, and this is why no Roman ever wanted to be put in Samaria. This is why no Roman ever wanted to go to Judea. Because these people, all they do is fight. They got like years of history, and we got to go in there and we got to babysit them. That's why Herod had such a bad attitude, by the way. Did you know that? Nobody 
Nobody. This is why Pilate washed his hands in front of Jesus going, I don't know what you people are doing. I'm just washing my hands of it. No, no Roman guy ever wanted to do time in Judea because of all of this bad blood. And Jesus decides that he is going to go out of his way to go to Samaria. And even in saying that, going out of his way is a misnomer. It simply says in the Bible that he had to go to Samaria. He had to. Not because it was the most direct route. Church, he had to because it was the most prudent thing for him to do. Jesus had a divine appointment with a Samaritan person. Jesus had to see. He had to see those his society felt uncomfortable with. He had to go and see them. He had to see those who were avoided. Jesus' love does not discriminate. He knows very well what he's walking into. You know, this is the opposite message of Jonah. Do you remember the story of Jonah? How many people remember Jonah? I don't want to talk about a story you don't know about. Yeah, Jonah. So Jonah, God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, yeah, I'm on board with that. Sure, okay, tell me the direction and I'll know. What did Jonah do? He ran in the opposite direction. Do you want to know why? Because the Ninevites were unclean. They were disgusting. They worshiped idols. Their religion was wrong. The Ninevites, they were, they were a warlike people. The Jewish people, they, they were not like this. But the Ninevites, they, they would conquer their enemies, and then they would, they would put heads on poles and skin on the walls of Assyria where they were. They would, they would put all of these nasty... So when you walked up to the Ninevite capital, you were scared to death to do anything wrong. Ninevites were disgusting. And it's interesting, Jonah does not want to go to the Ninevites, not because they're disgusting people. He doesn't want to go to the Ninevites because he doesn't want them in his family. He knows that God will save them. He knows that God will be compassionate to these animals, these ruthless enemies, these scary people. He didn't want, he wanted to keep them on the avoid list. And so he didn't want to go. But God forces him to go. You remember the story? God forces him to go. How did God force him to go? He got on a boat to go the other direction, literally the opposite direction, and God sent along a storm, you remember, and so they threw him overboard, and he gets swallowed by a big fish. Does this ring a bell? And he's three days in the fish, and then the fish belches him up after he prays, and he says, I don't want to die in here. Fish belches him up. Can you imagine this, this whitewashed, you know, can you imagine what stomach juices do to a body after three days? And then he goes and he wanders into this camp of these disgusting, religious, broken people. And he wanders in there and he smells like fish and he looks worse. And he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you know what happened? The whole city repents. Everybody repents. It's an amazing thing. Do you know how Jonah felt about that? He hated it. It made him want to barf. Like the fish just barfed him out. Do you know how I know that? Have you ever read how Jonah ends? It doesn't end. Jonah goes up to a mountain after the entire city repents. I mean, it is the biggest altar call in human history. Jonah goes up to a mountain, he sits there, and he sulks. And God visits him, and he says to him, in Jonah chapter 4, he says, why are you up here sulking and not down there rejoicing with all of the people that just came to know me as their Savior? And Jonah said, because I knew you'd forgive them. 
And I knew you'd put them back on the list of people that I have to love. If you think I'm making it up, here's Jonah 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was, what church? Angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, because I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Do you see the culture ingrained in this prophet? He's so used to the Ninevites being on the avoid list, he can't even change his mind to think they might now be brothers and sisters. Can't do it. It is ingrained in him. And he's prejudiced. He didn't want these people to be now his brothers and sisters. So Jesus is a better Jonah. Here's how the story goes with Jesus, verse 6, 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Jesus now is traveling through Samaritan territory. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Sychar is in Samaritan territory. It is where Jacob's well was. Sychar, by the way, in the Hebrew... (laughs) When the Hebrews wrote about this town, they called it the town of falsehood and drunkards. They didn't call it Sychar, which was its name. They gave it a nickname, Sikkim. And Sikkim means either town of falsehood or town of drunkards. This is how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. Jacob's well was there. It was known as one of the places where you could get the cleanest water. Some people traveled twice the distance to get to Jacob's well because it had clean, fresh water. So it was a popular place, but not at the sixth hour. This is the middle of the day. Nobody gets water in the middle of the day. You're carrying a bar on your, on your shoulders with two big jars on both, both ends. You're not doing that in the middle of the 100-degree heat. You're going to do it in the morning or you're going to do it in the evening. She comes in the middle of the day. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to buy food. The woman went to this well, the sixth hour, because it was when no one else would be there. She had something in her life that she was not proud of, and she didn't want to have conversations about any of it. She's an outcast. She's somebody to be avoided. So she comes to the well when no one else was there. And she's surprised to see Jesus there, a Jew, nonetheless, sitting at the well. She wanted to avoid other women. She wanted to avoid other people. And Jesus is going out of expected social norms to meet with somebody that everyone else would go out of their way to avoid. He plops himself down at the well and waits for her to arrive. He knows she's coming. Why? Because he's God. He's got that advantage. Jesus makes a, con- a connection by breaking several norms here. Number one, single guys don't talk to single girls. And if you want to find a single girl that is kind of on the loose side, you can usually find them and hit on them at the well. This is usually what was done. Jesus decides, forget all that, it doesn't matter. It's more important that I have a one-on-one with this woman. So he breaks every social norm, and he goes to the well to wait for the woman. To prove that, 
Why don't the disciples stay with him? Why did Jesus send the disciples away to buy food? Why not just send a couple of them away to buy food? Why does he send all of them away to buy food? Do you know why? He doesn't want the woman to be embarrassed. Imagine if this was you. You've been married multiple times. You're sleeping with multiple guys, and you, you don't want, you're in a society that does not accept that. And you walk up to a well, and you see a bunch of people hanging around it, you're going to turn around and go right back home. But if there's just one person there, maybe you'll keep, the, keep going on the journey. I think Jesus wanted to show this woman respect. I believe he sent them away because they would have responded poorly to her, number one. They would have pointed out the fact that a single guy, Jesus, should not be talking to a single woman at the well. This is, this is out. Of, so Jesus says, I'm not going to deal with that. You guys go away because I've got a meeting I have to have. And the woman walks up. Jesus wanted to talk to her, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews, John writes it down because we may not know. So he writes, I love this about John. Just to make it clear, in case you don't know the history here, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. John keeps nothing from the reader. He wants us to know this is an awkward, weird, strange meeting. He wants us to know this woman that Jesus is talking to is on the avoid-at-all-costs list. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love how Jesus does this. Jesus takes a normal need, a normal thing, and turns it into a spiritual thing, a spiritual need. He does this with Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. Nicodemus is going, what? Do you crawl it back into my mother's womb? I don't... Nicodemus knew what born means, but he needs to know what it means to be born again. This woman knew what thirst means. She was very thirsty. Her physical body was very thirsty, but what she didn't know is that her emotional and spiritual side of her was very thirsty as well. The woman was looking for satisfaction physically. In this case, she needed water, but she needed some other satisfaction emotionally and spiritually, and she was looking in all the wrong places. So Jesus decides to show up, and he waits for her. And he doesn't take any time at all. He puts the finger that, that, that needs to be put down, he puts it on her need. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him like a spring of, of water welling up into eternal life. Do you know what he did? He said to this woman, you understand physical thirst. You walk up here every day and fill those jugs and walk all the way back and you do it all alone because you don't want to have conversations with people that make you feel uncomfortable. You know how important it is to be thirsty and how, it, how, how you need to drink water. But what you don't know is that you have a thirst that's deeper than your physical thirst. Your thirst is causing you to make a whole lot of bad decisions. You are looking for love in all the wrong places. She's trying to fill herself up with water 
to take away her physical thirst. And Jesus is saying, that's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is to fill yourself up with living water so that you don't thirst, you don't have this hunger for something that you can never slake anymore. You need to, you, you have a deeper need here. He takes something physical and he turns it into something powerfully spiritual. Blaise Pascal says this, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by his creator and made known to him through Jesus Christ. Her thirst for fulfillment, for water, was, was taken away temporarily every time she drank. But her thirst for meaning and acceptance, every man she slept with, it was never taken away. In fact, her attention defined her life. Her need for attention made her who she was. But she doesn't get it right away. So in verse 15, she says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty anymore and I won't have to come to this doggone well to draw water. It's a real pain in the neck, literally, to come up here and put this water on the stick and balance all the way back. I hate doing this every day. If you've got a way so I don't have to get this water over and over and over again, please tell me. But her attention is only on the physical water. She bites. And so Jesus immediately moves to her real need. Verse 16. I love this about Jesus. Jesus said to her, go get your husband and come back and see me. Oh, ouch. (laughs) Immediately he goes to the thing she is drinking over and over. Immediately he goes to the thing that's ruining her life. Immediately she's embarrassed. So you know what she does? She covers. Like anyone whose sin is addressed, cover. So here's what she says in verse 17. The woman answered him and said, I don't have a husband. Cover. Protection. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. So what you said is true. How would you feel if you were the Samaritan woman? Tad bit embarrassed, exposed, vulnerable, transparent. How does this guy know my life? Sure, I got a name in the village, but none of them know that I'm sleeping around now. How, do, how does he know, and no Jew knows any Samaritan this well anyway. Jesus said your hunger to find meaning is only digging yourself a, dig, a bigger hole. And you'll never be satisfied in that well that you're digging now. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Don't you love that? <laughs> you, you must be a prophet. That's a, yeah, read my, read my uh, future on my hand, read my palm. <laughs> she's caught, she's embarrassed. So you know what she does? <laughs> she changes the subject. For the next four verses, she tries to get Jesus off the subject of her need to find fulfillment in men. And instead she talks about religion because she thinks, okay, he's a prophet, let's talk religion, he'll forget about this conversation that he wants me to get talking talking about now. So for the next four verses, she starts comparing Jewish religion and Samaritan religion because she knows the history. She knows this is going to get this Jewish teacher off track. 
So she picks the most divisive topic. And during this time, she says, hey, let's talk about which mountain is the right mountain to worship on. Is it Gezerim or is it uh, uh, Mount Zion? Which one is it? Jesus talks with her for those four verses, and then he brings it around in verse 23, and he says, listen, lady, the hour is coming, and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus brings it to the spirit again, just like he did with Nicodemus. The spirit, the wind blows. You remember that whole conversation? He brings it to the spirit. Why? Because the spirit's job is to unite the world in Jesus. That's it. He'll convict of sin. He will lead into truth. He'll do all the jobs that he's given to do. But his primary goal in all of those things is to build one family centered around one person, Jesus Christ. So Jesus brings his teaching around to the Spirit because she's trying to talk about the divisions and he wants to talk about unity. Should we worship in this mountain or this mountain? Let's talk about the divisions. Jesus says, no, let's talk about unity. There's a time coming when it won't matter what mountain you worship on. There's a time coming when the world will be united in worship of me because of the Spirit of God that lives inside every person. The Spirit of God will create a world where buildings and mountains no longer matter. You could meet in Fountain View Recreation Center and you could have a worship service. <laughs> you could be driving in your car and you could sing to the Lord. You can hit your knees at any hospital setting, at any place, and the same God will hear you cry out because of the Spirit of God that unites us. God's family will be made up of all kinds of different people in all kinds of different settings. No one is ever going to be avoided. No one is ever going to be ignored. Nobody will ever be a foreigner in this family. Everybody, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that whoever, whosoever calls upon his name will be saved, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There's no qualifiers. Jesus brings it around and helps this woman understand, listen, you may think that you're on an avoid list with a bunch of these Jewish people, but I made a special trip to tell you I'm creating a family where there's no avoid lists at all. Matthew 21, 42 I love it when Jesus teaches this. He says, have you never read in the scriptures a stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone? This was of the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The religious leaders of the day would reject Jesus Christ. They would reject that stone, and that stone would become God's cornerstone to build his church. That stone would be killed on a cross. The blood would be shed, and that stone, Jesus, would become the cornerstone upon which his whole church is built. He would be the foundation of the new family. The woman is still confused. Verse 25, she said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who calls himself the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all these things. She just wants to get out of it. She says, okay, you're a Jewish person. You know this stuff. I haven't heard this spirit conversation before. But okay, so you know stuff. I know stuff too. Because I'm a Samaritan and I worship on this mountain. We disagree on stuff. So that's fine. Listen, when the Messiah comes, which they believed in, and the Jews believed in, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain it all to us. I mean, who are we supposed to listen to? Where are the right divisions? Who has the right religion? The Messiah will tell us when he arrives. And then Jesus lays a bomb. 
Verse 20, 28, 25. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What do you think her reaction was at that point? Disbelief? Get out of here. Come on. I'm sitting here with the Messiah. The guy Samaritans are waiting for, the guy Jewish people are waiting for. I'm sitting here with him right now. You're him? Jesus says there will be no more divisions. You've been looking for a uniting factor. I'm it. Isn't that great? You've been looking for something that will unite the world. I'm it. You're talking to him right now. And with the acceptance of Jesus, the woman begins to consider the truth of what he said. In verse 28, we have a reaction. So the woman left the water jars, which were very valuable, by the way. The woman left the water jar and went away to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? When this Jew began looking at this woman as a person and not a category, the door was opened in her mind to consider that maybe this was what the truth was. Jesus saw her as a person and not a category. Let me say that one more time. Jesus saw this woman as a person and not a category. Look at the results, verse 30. Then they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Who's they? Samaritans, a whole truckload of them, a whole bucket full of them. They all decide that they're going to come and see this Jesus who this woman is talking about. But the... But what happens, we usually leave the story there. And it's a good story. We could leave it there. And we could draw a lot of cool stuff out of it. But you know what happens next, I think, is the most important thing. The disciples get back with the food. And when the disciples get back with the food, they're going, oh, boy, uh, there's a lot of Samaritans here. We are a little bit outnumbered. How did this happen? John, how did you let this happen? Peter, you're supposed to, what's wrong with you? Somebody should have kept this from him. Who was supposed to stay with him? Look what he's done. Now we got all these people here, and we're outnumbered, and they don't like us. And they come walking up to Jesus with the food. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. They come up to Jesus with the food, and they were urging him in verse 31, Rabbi, eat. Go down to verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his will. Jesus does it again, doggone it. He takes a physical thing and he makes a spiritual application. He says, you're giving me this physical food, I don't have time for it. Our time is running out. We have got to feed these people spiritual food because they, their lives are ending. Their lives are a vapor. They appear for a little while and then they're gone. We don't have time to mess around. Time is too short to be hung up on who we should avoid and who we shouldn't avoid. Verse 35, do not say there are yet four months and then come the harvest. Don't say I got time to do this later. Don't say we got, we got time to wait. Uh, let's wait till the harvest is really, really ready and we'll get out there and take it. Jesus says don't, don't wait. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white unto harvest church, if the disciples lifted up their eyes and looked at what field was white to harvest, who were they looking at on this day? They were looking at Samaritans. And how did Jewish people feel about Samaritans? They were on the avoid list. 
Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I'm going to teach you a lesson right here. Lift up your eyes. Who do you see? Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Village Church East. It's good to see you. My name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor here. And if you have little ones that you would like to send out with a uh, very competent children's staff so that they can learn at their own level uh, this morning, same lesson, actually. Uh, but in a different location, you can send them out now. I think they're all gone. Good. Good to see you all this morning. Well, it is spring break. Take a look around. That's not hard to figure out, is it? <laughs> it's so interesting that um, every year we get to the point where everybody gets a moment to spend time with family. I hope that you're getting that as well uh, in your different opportunities that you have with your families as well. I thought maybe we would do a little something before we started this morning while we're getting the sound played with a little bit. Uh, I would like to just remind you, if you are watching the news and you're seeing what's going on in Afghanistan, uh, you're kind of keeping track of that, I want to remind you that you can give directly through our church. You're thinking to yourself, what can I do to help? What can, how, can I, how can I participate in, in what God might be doing behind the scenes? You can uh, jump on our website, press the Give button, and it will take you right to an opportunity to give to uh, Carol, uh, Carol Stream, Village Church East, and then it'll say uh, uh, Ukraine. And if you click on that, it'll take you to an Awana website. And we are, we've are we decided that we're going to be giving not only a couple of weeks like what we decided at the beginning, but we're going to continue uh, giving to this Awana uh, group that is over there <clears throat> and constantly working with missionaries and constantly working through churches that are ministering to people that are being displaced looking for places to go, looking for medicine, looking for food. This gives us a direct line so that your cash, 100% of it, there's no, there, this is all, everything that you give goes directly to help those people uh, in Ukraine going through all of this. So if you would like to do that, I just wanted to remind you that that is an opportunity. And I thought maybe we would uh, open up our my time this morning during the service by praying for uh, what God might be doing behind the scenes that we don't get to see on a regular basis. So would you bow your heads with me? Father God, when we look at the condition of our world, sometimes it, it seems like we think it can't get any worse, and then it does. And it surprises us how dark the darkness can get. For the people that are fleeing for their lives in Ukraine, taken by surprise through this event that is happening over there, Father, I pray that even in the middle of that darkness, your grace would be great, your light would shine through your people, through your church that is active and at work in the surrounding nations and also really still now in Ukraine. May you build them up, encourage them, give them a love, a joy, a peace that passes understanding. May you be close to them, closer than they've ever thought possible. And as they go through the horrors of losing loved ones and family members and friends and seeing the carnage around them of this senseless activity that's going on right now, I pray, Father, that somehow you and your name and your grace and your love and your mercy and your compassion and everything that you are would be seen through the darkness, available and seen through your people. And so, Father, we, we want to give finances and help in any way that we can, but we also believe that prayer is our greatest weapon. So may you take these prayers that we pray and your people are praying around the world, bring an end to this conflict, preserve life, and I pray that you would help sense and, and uh, 
um, reason to prevail. Help us to know what our part to play is, uh, that we should be playing as a nation, and help us to do it boldly and courageously. Help us to lead the way because of the gifts that you have given to us as a nation. And may we be a light in, in our generosity to those that are being pillaged and hurt even today. And for the soldiers that are fighting for Russia, that don't know why they're there and are fighting under duress uh, because their families will be harmed if they don't, I pray that even, even there, these people that are creating the carnage, I pray that they would see you, recognize the error of their ways, and they would turn their lives to you. You're the only hope for that situation and every other situation on the planet. You've always been. So may your grace be strong. May the power of your name uh, bring peace to these areas of conflict. I pray it's all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're starting a new series today. I've been anxious to get to this new series. Uh, this is called Foreigners, Enemies, and Outcasts. Uh, and you have to say it like I do. So uh, if you're not Canadian, everybody get ready. Here I go, foreigners, enemies, and outcasts. That's right, outcasts. Uh, this is a, a new series we're going to be doing. It'll lead us right up to Palm Sunday. Uh, Megan did a great job of, of our announcements, and I, I am really excited that we're going to actually have our Palm Service Sunday with our friends at Bartlett. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to be there. That's the last Sunday that we're going to be working on this series that we're jumping into now. As we've walked through... Cana and Jesus saying goodbye to his mom and then moving on to the to the next phase where he talks to Nicodemus and he begins to enter into his ministry, turns over the tables in the temple. You've been tracking with us this whole time. He comes to the first moment when he's actually going to teach. Up to now, we don't have actually any anything that he's taught. He's taught the disciples and he may actually have done some public ministry. But as far as we know, this is the first time that Jesus actually takes a message public. We get to look at that this morning because it is so surprising who he talks to. So my question to you is, is this. When Jesus takes his, pub, his ministry public, he first goes to people who are avoided, people who are, who, who are kind of walked by, who, people, who, people who make other people feel uncomfortable. So my question to you this morning is this. Is there anyone on your avoid list. Do you have somebody, or maybe these days your avoid list is getting longer and longer. I love them, Craig. They're family, Craig. They're friends, Craig. But because of what's going on in our lives, they've now entered into my avoid list. Some of them are moving to the top quickly. Or maybe you have been put on an avoid list. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, Craig, I don't avoid anybody. I'm like Jesus. I don't avoid. I know where this message is going. You don't need to do the next... 30, 40 minutes, I, I know where this is going. I don't avoid anybody. Okay, well, there's some people that we do avoid, right? Telemarketers, we avoid, right? Telemarketers, sure, we avoid them. How about the Ugandan prince that promises you $1 million if you send him $5,000 today, right? We, we want to avoid that guy. How about the dentist, right? All right, so we want to avoid the dentist. How about that old girlfriend you stood up 10 years ago but now you're married and she lives three blocks from you, right? She is on the avoid list. How about an, any interaction with any cellular company at all? That's on my avoid list. How about your wife when she starts out the sentence with, when you get home, we've got to talk? The avoid list. 
How about the family member that wants to discuss politics again? <laughs> the avoid list. How about the pastor when he says, hey, let's have coffee, avoid list. There's certain people that we put on this avoid list, and there's, there's different situations that we try to avoid. But we live in a time, interestingly enough, in these days, when we are encouraged to pe- put people on an avoid list. We live in a time when increasingly told it is acceptable and even recommended to put people on your avoid list. They don't agree with your point of view. They, 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 they are others, there are other people in your life that tell you what you should think of those other people. And if you don't think that way, you're going on their avoid. I had, I had, I had a woman that told me that she befriended a guy in her family that everybody else befriended, but because of his political views, everybody else put him on the avoid list. But because she befriended him and wouldn't put him on her avoid list, she was on everybody else's avoid list. While we're starting this series on foreigners, enemies, and outcasts, and I want you to know something about Jesus you probably already know. Jesus constantly went against the social norms. He's actually known for befriending people others constantly try to avoid. Jesus ran toward these people. He ran toward people that others disliked. He ran toward people that others overlooked. And he ran toward people that others avoided. And his first lesson, his first devotional, his first message was given to the person on the top of every Jewish avoid list. Do you know the story? Here it is. This is when Jesus went out of his way to talk to a Samaritan woman. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, Samaritan woman? Wait a second. No, Jesus liked the Samaritans. Yes, he did. We have the parable of the good Samaritan. Thank you very much, yes. Yes, we can participate here. Parable of the Good Samaritan. And so we were thinking to ourselves, no, there's Good Samaritans. Mm, 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 mm. That's why that parable rubbed the Jews the wrong way. There were no good Samaritans. So when Jesus made up a parable of a guy that went out of his way to help somebody else, he wanted to put his finger in the eye of the problem that these Jewish people were, were, were facing. And so he said, you know what? The hero in this story is going to be the person you hate person you try to avoid. So we're going to make it a Samaritan. When he healed the 10 lepers, you remember that story? Healed the 10 lepers, nine, nine never came back and thanked him. They all were healed as they left him. You may not know the story. It's a great story. Only one person, one leper came back to thank him. Do you know who that was? It was a Samaritan. We know these stories, so we think to ourselves, well, no, the Samaritans, they, they, they got along well. Mm-mm, they did not. You might be shocked to know Jesus began his public ministry by talking to the person, to the group of people, the person <laughs> on the list of every Jewish to be avoided list. Not only did he do that, but he talked to this lady, and she had a lot of reasons personally, not just being a Samaritan, but personally, why she should be avoided. She was unmarried. She was sleeping with a lot of guys. And she was a Samaritan. And guess what Jesus does? He makes a beeline for her. Starts in John 4, verse 1. Well, we'll start in verse 3. He left Judea 
and he departed again for Galilee. And now I want you to read this next verse, all right? These next two words, because again, if you just read over them, you're going to miss it. So I underlined them and made them yellow for you, all right? And he, what does it say? He had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. So those words make me go, hmm. Jesus is on his way home from Passover. You know this. He just had Passover. He turned over the tables, made everybody mad, and then he meets with Nicodemus. That's all Passover weekend. His conversation with Nicodemus in in, uh, John chapter 3 went amazingly well. But now he's going to go home to Galilee where he lives. And on his way home, he has a choice. And his choice is to go the route that most Jewish people went to go from Jerusalem to Galilee, or he could go another route. Now, this is going to shock you, so I put the map up here so that you could see it. Most Jewish people followed the red dotted line. Do you see how far out of the way that is? They left Judea, they left Jerusalem, and then they went across the Jordan River. You see that? They went across the Jordan River, and then they walked up the other side of the Jordan, and then they walked back into Jewish territory to get to Galilee. Now, is there a shorter route? Yeah. How about straight through? Jesus went straight through. He did not take the route that most Jewish people did. That big arrow there is a straight shot up to Galilee, and where that arrow ends is a place called Sychar, and this is where he met the woman at the well. Typically, this is why Jewish people avoided Samaritans, because you're probably thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't make much sense. Why would they avoid Samaritans? I'm glad you asked. Samaritans were half Jewish and half Gentile. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Again, that's no big deal. To a Jewish person, it was, because there is always a reason why Jewish people don't marry other Jewish people. Because Jewish people are supposed to marry other Jewish people. In this case, these guys, these people, these Samaritans, were referred to as unclean people. Actually, they had a word for them, and I'm I'm sorry this offends you, but this is literally, they would call them one of two words. Do you know what any of the two words were? They would call the Samaritans, Jews would call the Samaritans dogs, or they would call them half-breeds. Typical. It was well accepted on the avoid list. Now, in our day today, we're thinking to ourselves, oh, that's very offensive. I can't believe Craig would even say such a thing. You maybe don't understand the world in which we live, because the avoid list in our world is getting pretty long, too. Don't talk to these people. Do talk to these people. We'll get more to that. But for now, let's deal with Jesus' day. The Samaritans were ceremonially unclean people. Here's why. This is amazing. If you study the history of where the Samaritans came from, does anybody know where the Samaritans came from? The Assyrians, when they attacked and besieged Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, you remember that? Actually, it's before Isaiah's day. A long time ago, 722, before Christ. When they besieged Jerusalem and they attacked Jerusalem, northern, southern kingdom, a lot of them stayed. And they stayed and they married and they had offspring and those people got married and they had offspring and those people got married and they had offspring. So you know who the, who the Samaritans were? Assyrians who attacked Israel so many, so many two, 700 years ago. They had relations. They took advantage of the Jewish people. 
and they had offspring, and those offspring had offspring. And so the Jewish people resented the fact that they were Assyrian blood. They were their enemies. They were ceremonially unclean. Not only that, but they had bad blood between them. (laughs) Here's what happened. When they came home from Babylon, you remember they went into exile in Babylon. You may not know this, but here's some history for you. They go into exile in Babylon. They're in exile, and they get sent home. This is the time of Ezra. You remember this in the Old Testament? They get sent home, and Nehemiah, Nehemiah builds the wall. You remember the story? Nehemiah builds the wall. They're trying to make their lives ha- happen again. The, the, wor- the world is, is burnt. It's, it's destroyed because the Babylonians desecrated everything. They burnt everything. Nothing's there. They destroy. Then they poured salt on it. Nothing could grow. These guys had to come back, and they had to try and make life. And it was hard. And when they came back and they tried to make life happen again, you know who was still there? The Samaritans, the offspring of the Assyrians. And you know who gave Nehemiah a hard time while he was trying to build the wall and get the people back up on their feet and trying to rebuild their lives? You know who that was? The Samaritans. Nothing good about that, is there? They had bad blood. And also they were theologically offensive. What do I mean by that? They thought they had the mountain to worship in. The Jewish people said that was Mount Zion. This is a place where we worship. But the Samaritans, they weren't allowed to Mount Zion. They weren't allowed to go there, so they made up their own mountain to worship, and that mountain was where Jesus headed now. Samaritans didn't believe anything after the Pentateuch. They said that they were Jewish. They said that they were more Jewish than the real Jews because they stayed in the land while they were off in captivity. And there was bad blood between them. And they were theologically offensive to the Jews because they said nothing after the Pentateuch counts. Because that's when the Jews went into exile and that's when all of those minor prophets were written and none of that matters. Nothing matters when the divided kingdom happened. David and Solomon and all that junk and Saul, nothing of that matters. What matters is the real truth of God, and that's only in the Pentateuch. And the Samaritans had their own place of worship, and they had their own Bible. And it was cut off at the Pentateuch. The Jewish people did not give the Samaritans any way to be right with God. They were so far off the deep end, there was no way for them to come back. And so they let them worship at their own Mount Gizron was the name of the place. Well, the Jews had enough of that. (laughs) So the Jewish people, 200 years before Jesus was born, they invaded Samaritan territory and they burned the temple of the Samaritans to the ground because they were worshiping in the wrong place. There's some history. So do you think the Samaritans like the Jewish people? Do you think the Jewish people like the Samaritan people? And there you have it. This is the world that Jesus walks into. The Jews were despised by the Samaritans. They were despised for their beliefs, their culture. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews, and the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. It was culturally acceptable. This division could not be repaired. It was well accepted. And then, because these people are always fighting, the Romans come in, conquer the land, and this is why no Roman ever wanted to be put in Samaria. This is why no Roman ever wanted to go to Judea. Because these people, all they do is fight. They got like 
years of history, and we got to go in there and we got to babysit them. That's why Herod had such a bad attitude, by the way. Did you know that? Nobody. Nobody. This is why Pilate washed his hands in front of Jesus going, I don't know what you people are doing. I'm just washing my hands of it. No, no Roman guy ever wanted to do time in Judea because of all of this bad blood. And Jesus decides that he is going to go out of his way to go to Samaria. And even in saying that, going out of his way is a misnomer. It simply says in the Bible that he had to go to Samaria. He had to. Not because it was the most direct route. Church, he had to because it was the most prudent thing for him to do. Jesus had a divine appointment with a Samaritan person. Jesus had to see. He had to see those his society felt uncomfortable with. He had to go and see them. He had to see those who were avoided. Jesus' love does not discriminate. He knows very well what he's walking into. You know, this is the opposite message of Jonah. Do you remember the story of Jonah? How many people remember Jonah? I don't want to talk about a story you don't know about. Yeah, Jonah. So Jonah, God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, yeah, I'm on board with that. Sure, okay, tell me the direction and I'll know. What did Jonah do? He ran in the opposite direction. Do you want to know why? Because the Ninevites were unclean. They were disgusting. They worshiped idols. Their religion was wrong. The Ninevites, they were, they were a warlike people. The Jewish people, they, they were not like this. But the Ninevites, they, they would conquer their enemies, and then they would, they would put heads on poles and skin on the walls of Assyria where they were. They would, they would put all of these nasty... So when you walked up to the Ninevite capital, you were scared to death to do anything wrong. Ninevites were disgusting. And it's interesting, Jonah does not want to go to the Ninevites, not because they're disgusting people. He doesn't want to go to the Ninevites because he doesn't want them in his family. He knows that God will save them. He knows that God will be compassionate to these animals, these ruthless enemies, these scary people. He didn't want, he wanted to keep them on the avoid list. And so he didn't want to go. But God forces him to go. You remember the story? God forces him to go. How did God force him to go? He got on a boat to go the other direction, literally the opposite direction, and God sent along a storm, you remember, and so they threw him overboard, and he gets swallowed by a big fish. Does this ring a bell? And he's three days in the fish, and then the fish belches him up after he prays, and he says, I don't want to die in here. Fish belches him up. Can you imagine this, this whitewashed, you know, can you imagine what stomach juices do to a body after three days? And then he goes and he wanders into this camp of these disgusting, religious, broken people. And he wanders in there and he smells like fish and he looks worse. And he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you know what happened? The whole city repents. Everybody repents. It's an amazing thing. Do you know how Jonah felt about that? He hated it. It made him want to barf. Like the fish just barfed him out. Do you know how I know that? Have you ever read how Jonah ends? It doesn't end. Jonah goes up to a mountain after the entire city repents. I mean, it is the biggest altar call in human history. Jonah goes up to a mountain, he sits there, and he sulks. And God visits him, and he says to him, in Jonah chapter 4, he says, 
Why are you up here sulking and not down there rejoicing with all of the people that just came to know me as their Savior? And Jonah said, because I knew you'd forgive them. And I knew you'd put them back on the list of people that I have to love. If you think I'm making it up, here's Jonah 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was, what, church? Angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, because I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Do you see the culture ingrained in this prophet? He's so used to the Ninevites being on the avoid list, he can't even change his mind to think they might now be brothers and sisters. Can't do it. It is ingrained in him. And he's prejudiced. He didn't want these people to be now his brothers and sisters. So Jesus is a better Jonah. Here's how the story goes with Jesus, verse 6, 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Jesus now is traveling through Samaritan territory. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Sychar is in Samaritan territory. It is where Jacob's well was. Sychar, by the way, in the Hebrew, (laughs) when the Hebrews wrote about this town, they called it the town of falsehood and drunkards. They didn't call it Sychar, which was his name. They gave it a nickname, Sikkim. And Sikkim means either town of falsehood or town of drunkards. This is how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. Jacob's well was there. It was known as one of the places where you could get the cleanest water. Some people traveled twice the distance to get to Jacob's well because it had clean, fresh water. So it was a popular place, but not at the sixth hour. This is the middle of the day. Nobody gets water in the middle of the day. You're carrying a bar on your, on your shoulders with two big jars on both, both ends. You're not doing that in the middle of the 100-degree heat. You're going to do it in the morning or you're going to do it in the evening. She comes in the middle of the day. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to buy food. The woman went to this well, the sixth hour, because it was when no one else would be there. She had something in her life that she was not proud of, and she didn't want to have conversations about any of it. She's an outcast. She's somebody to be avoided. So she comes to the well when no one else was there, and she's surprised to see Jesus there, a Jew nonetheless, sitting at the well. She wanted to avoid other women. She wanted to avoid other people. And Jesus is going out of expected social norms to meet with somebody that everyone else would go out of their way to avoid. He plops himself down at the well and waits for her to arrive. He knows she's coming. Why? Because he's God. He's got that advantage. Jesus makes a a connection by breaking several norms here. Number one, single guys don't talk to single girls. And if you want to find a single girl that is kind of on the loose side, you can usually find them and hit on them at the well. This is usually what was done. Jesus decides, forget all that. It doesn't matter. It's more important that I have a one-on-one with this woman 
So he breaks every social norm, and he goes to the well to wait for the woman. To prove that, why don't the disciples stay with him? Why did Jesus send the disciples away to buy food? Why not just send a couple of them away to buy food? Why does he send all of them away to buy food? Do you know why? He doesn't want the woman to be embarrassed. Imagine if this was you. You've been married multiple times. You're sleeping with multiple guys, and you, you don't want, you're in a society that does not accept that. And you walk up to a well, and you see a bunch of people hanging around it, you're going to turn around and go right back home. But if there's just one person there, maybe you'll keep, the, keep going on the journey. I think Jesus wanted to show this woman respect. I believe he sent them away because they would have responded poorly to her, number one. They would have pointed out the fact that a single guy, Jesus, should not be talking to a single woman at the well. This is, this is out. Of, so Jesus says, I'm not going to deal with that. You guys go away because I've got a meeting I have to have. And the woman walks up. Jesus wanted to talk to her, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews, John writes it down because we may not know. So he writes, I love this about John. Just to make it clear, in case you don't know the history here, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. John keeps nothing from the reader. He wants us to know this is an awkward, weird, strange meeting. He wants us to know this woman that Jesus is talking to is on the avoid-at-all-costs list. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love how Jesus does this. Jesus takes a normal need, a normal thing, and turns it into a spiritual thing, a spiritual need. He does this with Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. Nicodemus is going, what? Do you crawl it back into my mother's womb? I don't... Nicodemus knew what born means, but he needs to know what it means to be born again. This woman knew what thirst means. She was very thirsty. Her physical body was very thirsty, but what she didn't know is that her emotional and spiritual side of her was very thirsty as well. The woman was looking for satisfaction physically. In this case, she needed water, but she needed some other satisfaction emotionally and spiritually, and she was looking in all the wrong places. So Jesus decides to show up, and he waits for her. And he doesn't take any time at all. He puts the finger that, that, that needs to be put down, he puts it on her knee. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him like a spring of of water welling up into eternal life. Do you know what he did? He said to this woman, you understand physical thirst. You walk up here every day and fill those jugs and walk all the way back and you do it all alone because you don't want to have conversations with people that make you feel uncomfortable. You know how important it is to be thirsty and how how, how you need to drink water. But what you don't know is that you have a thirst that's deeper than your physical thirst. Your thirst is causing you to make a whole lot of bad decisions. You are looking for love in all the wrong places. She's trying to fill herself up with water. 
to take away her physical thirst. And Jesus is saying, that's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is to fill yourself up with living water so that you don't thirst, you don't have this hunger for something that you can never slake anymore. You need to, you, you have a deeper need here. He takes something physical and he turns it into something powerfully spiritual. Blaise Pascal says this, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by his creator and made known to him through Jesus Christ. Her thirst for fulfillment, for water, was, was taken away temporarily every time she drank. But her thirst for meaning and acceptance, every man she slept with, it was never taken away. In fact, her attention defined her life. Her need for attention made her who she was. But she doesn't get it right away. So in verse 15, she says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty anymore and I won't have to come to this doggone well to draw water. It's a real pain in the neck, literally, to come up here and put this water on the stick and balance all the way back. I hate doing this every day. If you've got a way so I don't have to get this water over and over and over again, please tell me. But her attention is only on the physical water. She bites. And so Jesus immediately moves to her real need. Verse 16. I love this about Jesus. Jesus said to her, go get your husband and come back and see me. Oh, ouch. (laughs) Immediately he goes to the thing she is drinking over and over. Immediately he goes to the thing that's ruining her life. Immediately she's embarrassed. So you know what she does? She covers. Like anyone whose sin is addressed, cover. So here's what she says in verse 17. The woman answered him and said, I don't have a husband. Cover. Protection. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. So what you said is true. How would you feel if you were the Samaritan woman? Tad bit embarrassed, exposed, vulnerable, transparent. How does this guy know my life? Sure, I got a name in the village, but none of them know that I'm sleeping around now. How, do, how does he know, and no Jew knows any Samaritan this well anyway. Jesus said, your hunger to find meaning is only digging yourself a, dig, a bigger hole. And you'll never be satisfied in that well that you're digging now. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Don't you love that? <laughs> you, you must be a prophet. That's a, yeah, read my, read my uh, future on my hand, read my palm. <laughs> she's caught, she's embarrassed. So you know what she does? <laughs> she changes the subject. For the next four verses, she tries to get Jesus off the subject of her need to find fulfillment in men. And instead she talks about religion because she thinks, okay, he's a prophet, let's talk religion, he'll forget about this conversation that he wants me to get talking talking about now. So for the next four verses, she starts comparing Jewish religion and Samaritan religion because she knows the history. She knows this is going to get this Jewish teacher off track. 
So she picks the most divisive topic. And during this time, she says, hey, let's talk about which mountain is the right mountain to worship on. Is it Gizerim or is it uh, uh, Mount Zion? Which one is it? Jesus talks with her for those four verses, and then he brings it around in verse 23, and he says, listen, lady, the hour is coming, and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus brings it to the spirit again, just like he did with Nicodemus. The spirit, the wind blows. You remember that whole conversation? He brings it to the spirit. Why? Because the spirit's job is to unite the world in Jesus. That's it. He'll convict of sin. He will lead into truth. He'll do all the jobs that he's given to do. But his primary goal in all of those things is to build one family centered around one person, Jesus Christ. So Jesus brings his teaching around to the Spirit because she's trying to talk about the divisions and he wants to talk about unity. Should we worship in this mountain or this mountain? Let's talk about the divisions. Jesus says, no, let's talk about unity. There's a time coming when it won't matter what mountain you worship on. There's a time coming when the world will be united in worship of me because of the Spirit of God that lives inside every person. The Spirit of God will create a world where buildings and mountains no longer matter. You could meet in Fountain View Recreation Center and you could have a worship service. <laughs> you could be driving in your car and you could sing to the Lord. You can hit your knees at any hospital setting, at any place, and the same God will hear you cry out because of the Spirit of God that unites us. God's family will be made up of all kinds of different people in all kinds of different settings. No one is ever going to be avoided. No one is ever going to be ignored. Nobody will ever be a foreigner in this family. Everybody, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that whoever, whosoever calls upon his name will be saved, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There's no qualifiers. Jesus brings it around and helps this woman understand, listen, you may think that you're on an avoid list with a bunch of these Jewish people, but I made a special trip to tell you I'm creating a family where there's no avoid lists at all. Matthew 21, 42 I love it when Jesus teaches this. He says, have you never read in the scriptures a stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone? This was of the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The religious leaders of the day would reject Jesus Christ. They would reject that stone, and that stone would become God's cornerstone to build his church. That stone would be killed on a cross. The blood would be shed, and that stone, Jesus, would become the cornerstone upon which his whole church is built. He would be the foundation of the new family. The woman is still confused. Verse 25, she said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who calls himself the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all these things. She just wants to get out of it. She says, okay, you're a Jewish person. You know this stuff. I haven't heard this spirit conversation before, but okay, so you know stuff. I know stuff too because I'm a Samaritan, and I worship on this mountain. We disagree on stuff, so that's fine. Listen, when the Messiah comes, which they believed in, and the Jews believed in, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain it all to us. I mean, who are we supposed to listen to? Where are the right divisions? Who has the right religion? The Messiah will tell us when he arrives. And then Jesus lays a bomb. 
Verse 20, 28, 25. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What do you think her reaction was at that point? Disbelief? Get out of here. Come on. I'm sitting here with the Messiah. The guy Samaritans are waiting for, the guy Jewish people are waiting for. I'm sitting here with him right now. You're him? Jesus says there will be no more divisions. You've been looking for a uniting factor. I'm it. Isn't that great? You've been looking for something that will unite the world. I'm it. You're talking to him right now. And with the acceptance of Jesus, the woman begins to consider the truth of what he said. In verse 28, we have a reaction. So the woman left the water jars, which were very valuable, by the way. The woman left the water jar and went away to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? When this Jew began looking at this woman as a person and not a category, the door was opened in her mind to consider that maybe this was what the truth was. Jesus saw her as a person and not a category. Let me say that one more time. Jesus saw this woman as a person and not a category. Look at the results, verse 30. Then they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Who's they? Samaritans, a whole truckload of them, a whole bucket full of them. They all decide that they're going to come and see this Jesus who this woman is talking about. But, the, but what happens, we usually leave the story there. And it's a good story. We could leave it there. And we could draw a lot of cool stuff out of it. But you know what happens next, I think, is the most important thing. The disciples get back with the food. And when the disciples get back with the food, they're going, oh, boy, uh, there's a lot of Samaritans here. We are a little bit outnumbered. How did this happen? John, how did you let this happen? Peter, you're supposed to, what's wrong with you? Somebody should have kept this from him. Who was supposed to stay with him? Look what he's done. Now we got all these people here, and we're outnumbered, and they don't like us. And they come walking up to Jesus with the food. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. They come up to Jesus with the food, and they were urging him in verse 31, Rabbi, eat. Go down to verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his will. Jesus does it again, doggone it. He takes a physical thing and he makes a spiritual application. He says, you're giving me this physical food, I don't have time for it. Our time is running out. We have got to feed these people spiritual food because they, their lives are ending. Their lives are a vapor. They appear for a little while and then they're gone. We don't have time to mess around. Time is too short to be hung up on who we should avoid and who we shouldn't avoid. Verse 35, do not say there are yet four months and then come the harvest. Don't say I got time to do this later. Don't say we got, we got time to wait. Uh, let's wait till the harvest is really, really ready and we'll get out there and take it. Jesus says don't, don't wait. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white under harvest church, if the disciples lifted up their eyes and looked at what field was white to harvest, who were they looking at on this day? They were looking at Samaritans. And how did Jewish people feel about Samaritans? They were on the avoid list. 
Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I'm going to teach you a lesson right here. Lift up your eyes. Who do you see? They say, people we're supposed to avoid. I don't know why we came this way in the first place. Our lives are in danger. Let's get out of here. Why are we even here? Come on, let's go. Eat, let's go. He said, no, you're missing, you're missing the point. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't, don't, wait. don't get this avoid list and say you'll figure it out later. These disciples saw Samaritans, a lot of them. And the message is plain. Jesus is saying, guys, these are not weeds we walk over. These are souls that are precious to me. Unlike Jonah, who ended up sulking when people he didn't like, people on his avoid list, got into the kingdom of God. Jesus takes great joy when people are taken off the avoid list and put onto his family list. So you know what happens? This is great. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there how many days, church? Oh, sorry. Next verse. When the Samaritans came to him, verse 40, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed. There it is. How many more days? How do you think the Jews felt about shacking up in Samaria for two more days? Sleeping in Sychar, the town of the drunkards. <laughs> Sleeping with the dogs, literally. This is what the disciples thought, and Jesus said, no, I don't think you get it. So what we're going to do is we're going to sleep here in this town, and we're going to get to know these people on your avoid list so that you can see them, not as weeds we walk over, but as souls that are precious to me. And they stayed. And you know what they did every day? They kept on spreading the gospel. They kept on telling who Jesus was. He was the Messiah. They stayed for two days. And you know what happened when they stayed for two days? Verse 41 Read it with me, because it's great. And many more believed because of his word. In fact, there's a verse in there, and they talk to the woman, and they say, it's no longer because of your testimony of Jesus, but it's because of what we heard him say. And they believed. Here's a little chart for you. Jesus' actions, to capsulize this whole message. Jesus' actions breaks the social norms, Find, why? Because it makes others feel uncomfortable. It breaks the social norms. Finds common ground to share the gospel. Water. Common ground to share the gospel. What do you need? What are you searching for to satisfy yourself? It addresses sin. It doesn't overlook the problem in the woman's life. Brings it right up. It answers questions. Where's the right place to worship? Who's right? What is this hole in my heart that I have? It answers questions. It teaches disciples, those who are already followers of his. It says to his disciples, those whom you loved, I've come to save. And finally, it welcomes those typically avoided. It stays in the town that others are avoided and many, many people were saved. That's a good story, right? I need to remind you, this is the first teaching we have of Jesus Christ. This is where he chooses to go to first. He looks at the avoid list, and he chooses the name at the top, and he had 
to go to Samaria. So what? Number one, church, our goal is to see people, not groups. Oh, please remember our goal is to see people, not groups. It is a ploy of the devil today like never before in my lifetime to put people in groups and not see them as individual souls in need. I'll say that one more time. It is a ploy of the devil today like I've never seen before in my lifetime to put people in groups and not see them as individuals in need. And if we buy into that, we start our avoid list. If they're, not, if they're another political party, there's no need to speak to them. If they're in another culture, they're obviously not con- contributing properly to the American culture, so we don't need to talk to them. If they say they're gay, they're not the kind of people that our family would hang out with, so we don't need to talk to them. If they're against homosexuality, they obviously are not up to speed. They, uh, they, they, there's no need to befriend them or give them any thought at all. If they're pro-choice, they're duped and they cannot be befriended. If they're pro-life, they're old school, they're out of touch. If they're vaccinated, they don't follow the science and they're irrational. If they are, va- if they are vaccinated, they're duped and they're all lemmings. We are finding new categories on a regular basis and we are sticking people we love as well as people we haven't even talked to in groups so that we stop seeing them as people. People are not weeds we walk over. They're souls precious to God. One reason that I still drive Uber, because I get an enormous amount of people that sit in my back seat that would never walk into a church building, but I get to talk to them for 20 minutes in my car. The irony is, our world claims that it's creating a more integrated and more inclusive world, but in reality, it's just finding more reasons to create divisions by dividing groups that we, we, we find reasonable to avoid. Church, what is a group that you feel comfortable avoiding? What group is not worth your time? What group makes you feel uncomfortable? What group is on your to avoid list? Please understand, showing love does not mean approval. Did Jesus approve of this woman's lifestyle? It's pretty clear he didn't, right? But he didn't condemn her for it. He pointed out the flaw in her thinking. Jesus didn't approve of the lifestyle. Yet it is clear in his speech that he loved her regardless of what group she thought she was in. Listen, if there's only, if there's, there is really only one legitimate group. There's only really one. Do you know what it is? And Jesus has every right to point it out. There's the righteous group, and there's the sinner group. Who goes in the righteous group? Jesus. Anybody else? No. Who goes in the sinner group? Everyone else. There's no groups. So what Jesus did was he became, he jumped over into the sinner group so that the sinner could jump into the righteous group. We call that the doctrine of imputation, and it's a powerful truth. Number two, this brings me to the second one. Church, Jesus had to, and so do we. You have to do this. 
The point of this passage is multiple, but the main point is Jesus goes out of his way to share his love with a foreigner, a broken person, a person obviously looking for love in all the wrong places, somebody who made any normal person feel uncomfortable. Jesus goes out of his way to not avoid her. Can I ask you just one question? Where did Jesus just come from? You know this. We just went over this. Where did he just come from? Passover in the city of Jerusalem. You know who he left behind so that he could go visit? He left the comfortable people behind. He left his people behind so that he could go to the person his people avoided. Our goal, church, is to be more like Jesus, to fall in love with people like Jesus did, to help other people encourage, to encourage them not to avoid other people that they hear they should be avoiding. Jesus is a better Jonah. I made a chart for you because I love doing these charts. So I'm going to stand right in the middle here, and I'm going to do this little chart for you. I'm going to compare Jesus to Jonah. Here's Jonah. Jonah had to go to Nineveh. He did not approve of their lifestyle. He didn't like their gods and their idols. He didn't like their religion. He saw them as unclean and uncultured, and he was right. So God forced him to go through physical pain. He literally was in the belly of a, of a f- large fish for three days. Physical pain, and he forces him to go. And Jonah sulked because he thought these people weren't worth his time. He thought he wasted his life. Little did he know that the rest of human history would, would know Jonah as a person who, who, who was sent to Nineveh for, for this repentance revival. But at the end of the book of Jonah, all we have is a prophet that's sulking because he thought he wasted his life. We don't know what else Jonah did, by the way. All we know is that he went to Nineveh. That's all the story we have on Jonah. <laughs> and he blew it. Jesus had to go to Samaria. Look at the similarities. He didn't approve of her lifestyle. He didn't approve of their lifestyle. He didn't agree with their religion. He saw them as unclean because according to the Jewish law, which Jesus wrote, they were unclean. But he was driven to go out of love, and he rejoiced when they repented, even though it would cost him his life. Isn't that good? Jonah thought he wasted his life. Jesus gave his life. Time is short, and he tells his disciples, and I think this is the key to the whole thing. Church, the fields are white under harvest. Don't say you got another four months to clean this up or to get your avoid list fixed up. Who should we avoid, church? No one. No one fits that list. Church, I want to make this really, really clear. If anyone walks through the doors of our church, if you bring anyone with you to church, if you invite me over to your house and there's anyone sitting there from any background, any, any brokenness, any, any sexual gender, whatever it is, anyone, and I walk into that room, I need to see that person as a person that God loves and God wants to redeem. I don't see that person as a group. I see that person as a soul that Jesus died for. The world wants you to put them in groups so you feel better about yourself. Jesus says, go to the uncomfortable places because these are the people I came to save. Don't say you got another four months. Fields are white under harvest now. People are hungry now. Who should we avoid? No one. Because I want to tell you in the end times, when we're all standing before the throne of God and we're praising God for finally bringing 
justice and righteousness to a broken and dark, sin-filled world. There's going to be a group of people, Revelation, that says is going to be gathered around the throne of God, and we're all going to be singing the same praise songs together, and you'll know every word. And we're all going to be singing in our own tongues, in our own language, and Revelation makes it clear in Revelation 7, verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from church. Would you read these next few words with me? From every, what? From every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages. Who's left out? All languages, all tribes, all tongues, all people, all nations, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with one loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I look forward to that day. Church, listen, this is a hard one, because we live in a culture that says avoid lists are fine. I am telling you avoid lists are sinful. They are of the devil. And if there's anyone that you have cut out of your life so that you have no longer any opportunity to share the gospel with them or the love of Jesus with them, you got to rethink this whole thing. Because this is not who the gospel, the gospel was not made for middle-aged white men. The gospel was made for the world, past, present, and future. It's not made for people that you feel comfortable with. It's made for the world. And it's our job to share it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us this privilege of being your ambassadors to this world. We have a tendency to make up a lot of avoid lists. There are people in our our lives that we just don't feel comfortable with. Father, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us the power to overcome those obstacles that we've placed in our own lives. Help us to look at the real picture. We don't know how much longer we have. And the fields are already white. They're ready to be harvested. You're just looking for somebody to go and start gathering up the grain. Father, let that be us. I pray that we would use our time wisely. And I pray, Father, that if we have difficulty in this area, your spirit would be strong so that our avoid list can be erased today. In Jesus' name, I pray.